I V M. Hello and welcome to the Habit Coach podcast. I am Ashton Doctor, your Habit Coach, and today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects, which is meditation. Meditation has completely changed the way that I look at life and the way that my life was going as well. So. I constantly try to help people understand you know the power of meditation and how to get in their life. And whenever we talk about meditation the first thing that people say to me is oh I can't meditate. So as a result I love getting people on our podcast who can teach us who can understand who gone through the journey of meditation and share how they can do it and how we can do it as well. So today we have Swami Purna Chaitanya on the Habit Coach podcast to tell us about meditation. Swami ji welcome to the Habit Coach podcast. Thank you Ashton it's so lovely to be here and I'm so excited uh, I look I'm forward so to exploring this isn't it a fantastic topic this this meditation itself as a topic is so interesting how did you get into this how did you get into meditation well to be very honest um i was exposed to it at a very early age uh, i mean i'm from the netherlands i was born and brought up there uh, made in holland and um, my parents both were studying um psychology actually in the netherlands and during their studies uh, because they were also curious to learn more about how the mind works um, i guess you could say they were spiritually inclined um one of their friends came across a meditation program and they went for it they learned something about meditation they found it very interesting so they did an advanced program and they started meditating regularly on their own which in those days was still a little less common especially in the Netherlands also so when we were born me and my younger brother we grew up in a house where even though most things were you can say the usual uh, every once in a while our parents would maybe sit for a few minutes and meditate and usually we wouldn't notice that but then as we grew older uh, you know you get to know and then i remember once when i was 5 or 6 my parents also said okay you know, if you want we can meditate together so sometimes on a sunday when everybody was free we would sit in the living room and my brother and me in front of my parents and they would tell us okay you sit still with your eyes closed try not to move and try not to think of anything well of course no it's very exciting and then after one or two minutes you start opening one eye and seeing that you know is my brother also keeping his eyes closed and we'll start you know messing around a little and then suddenly my dad will be like <clears throat> and then again we will sit but <laughs> i think that has had left a, a curiosity and as i grew up i started practicing various eastern martial arts i had that maybe that pull that interest towards the eastern traditions and my mother is half indian actually she was okay. born in delhi so even though she grew up in holland i have a 25% punjabi dna oh wow uh, so bali, maybe bali. that also contributes but <laughs> so through the martial arts there is an element also of uh, you know some attention to the breath quieting the mind meditation but it's very limited and I found over the years that it was actually much more that aspect of learning how to manage and finally master your mind irrespective of the situation however challenging it may be then the actual fighting part and Correct. because I hit a a point where you know you can't really explore it deeper I was looking for other places something authentic read a few books saw some documentaries and then when I was 16 in Amsterdam I met my spiritual master Gurudev Sri Sri Ravi Shankar he came there for a public discourse and uh, so Amsterdam out of all places but it's a, there's a beautiful famous hall there there was a big crowd but for me that was a turning point I would say I was 16 at that time and uh, when I heard him speak and the whole way he carried himself you know his language was very simple very easy to understand but then 
at the same time, he was able to convey very profound wisdom. And he was so natural, so chilled out. And at the same time, had this very regal aura about him. And he guided us through a, a meditation as well as part of that program, which felt like two, three minutes, but 25 minutes went by like that. And like wow. you said, I was in the same category where maybe you want to meditate. I would sit at home also. And I had a small Buddha statue and I will sit, close my eyes and then, you know, try not to think of anything, but it's really not that easy. So for me, that was a point where I felt, oh, I have finally found someone who really knows this and who can also transfer it or who can actually teach it. So I started doing some of the programs that uh, this organization, The Art of Living, was offering in the Netherlands as well. So I learned more about yoga, about pranayama, meditation. And um, initially, the breathing techniques really helped me to quieten the mind a bit. And then to go deeper into meditation, they had some programs as well. And that was, I would say, the real start of my meditation journey. And now, fast forward, I have been practicing for over 20 years. I have been teaching across the world for the last 15 years, dedicated my life to share this because I found it was so beneficial and useful. And also because there has always been a, I would say, a a strong drive to do something that can help people. So I was never the kid that says, oh, I want to be a famous soccer player or have a huge house. I was always inclined to say, okay, what can I do maybe to help the world more or contribute, help people? And I found a, a beautiful means here. So after completing my studies, I came to India for one or two years to go deeper into this knowledge, the the Vedic traditions, the knowledge of yoga, meditation, mantras, Ayurveda. And then after those one or two years, I felt that this is what I want to do with my life. I can't just go back to a nine to five job and maybe have a little time in the weekend to explore this or to share this. And uh, yeah, then over the years, this is how it has progressed. That is so beautiful. There's so much to unpack there. I have lots of questions just from what you've said right now. Firstly, you were super lucky that you had parents who were meditating in the house. Just seeing parents do these activities makes it normal, right? There are so many households where this is not normal. Or for example, where exercising is not normal. Just seeing your yeah, parents yeah. do no, it. No, tell me about it. Uh, I grew up as a vegetarian. And in those days, I remember, of course, now it's much more popular. We have vegan, which is all of over course. the place. But in those days, I would go over to my friend's place, you know, after school to play or, and then for lunch or dinner, uh, the parents would ask me that uh, when they heard I was vegetarian, uh, but then what do you eat? And I would tell them, well, you give me the potatoes, the vegetables, just don't give me the meat. Hmm. And they said, but, but you can't just eat that. I said, yes, I can. <laughs> so in those days, it was quite uh, unusual. But like you Correct. said, I feel very fortunate to have that kind of exposure. What was your first experience when you had your meditation? You know, like a first deep session, like you explained that the first meditation was when um, your guru was there. Apart from that, when you started meditating by yourself, what was that journey like as opposed to that first experience? Well, Ashtin, I think for me, one of the things that I learned about meditation from my master when I started doing some of those programs, and that was a real eye-opener for me, was that our body and mind work on different laws. So on the level of the body, if we want to achieve anything, you have to put effort. Whether it is wanting to become more flexible, to become stronger, you have to exercise. If you want to learn how to play the guitar, you need to practice. And of course, this is what we have always learned, that you have to put effort, preferably consistent effort, like when we talk about habits, doing something regularly for some time at least, and then you get a result, you get progress, you move ahead. So we've always been taught this, that you have to do something to achieve something. But 
on the level of the mind, it is actually the opposite. So there it is not effort, but it is effortlessness that is the key. And I think even for myself, initially when I was keen to meditate or I started dabbling in it or, or experimenting or trying, the biggest, well, I will not say mistake, but maybe the, the biggest challenge I was facing was that maybe I was trying too much. So I was trying not to think or I was trying to settle the mind or making an effort to focus. And then you can, yes, of course, you can say, yes, the mind settles down a bit or it's less scattered, but to transcend the mind and to get into a state where you have such a deep experience of rest and where the mind can actually relax, unwind and throw off so many of those stresses and strains and impressions, clear some of that emotional, well, let's say garbage that we collect sometimes. That only happens when you go beyond the mind. And the first thing I learned and when I started practicing, even on my own uh, with the techniques that my master taught me, I realized that, oh, this is, it's really not even that difficult. But of course, you need to know how to go about it. And that is where, of course, in the ancient tradition, they've always said, you know, it's these things, you should learn it from a master, simply because it may take you ages to figure it out, if at all you succeed, because it's very tricky, you know? And, yes. and that was for me, um, I would say like a big shift, where I learned that that skill of doing nothing, of really letting go on the level of the mind, and that is giving a kind of rest to your mind that is even deeper than sleep. So I think especially in a world like that we live in today where you have so many impressions and you can't always avoid it or escape it. But then even sleeping for six, seven, eight hours, I think most of us have this experience that you wake up in the morning and mentally you don't feel totally fresh. There is still stuff going through your head or you say, let me first have my cup of tea or cup of coffee or my alkaline water or Red Bull <laughs> in worst case Correct. scenario <laughs> to get you going. Um, yes. So, so for the mind with all these impressions, that may not be sufficient to fully unwind or really relax. And that is where these practices become so, so beneficial, I think, for everyone. Correct. How do you describe the meditative state to people? How do you explain it to someone who's never experienced it? Well, I think that's always a challenge because an experience is always personal, right? Correct. If someone has never seen or tasted ice cream, I could ask you, Tell them what ice cream is like and you may say, well, you know, Swamiji, it is cold, it is sweet, uh, it is maybe a little fluffy or creamy or whatever it may be. But until I actually taste it myself, I will never really know what it's like. True. But to try and do justice to your question, I would say that real meditation is a state where, like I said, you go beyond the mind. So you're no longer consciously doing something or thinking something. It is like you're experiencing, but you're not experiencing something. And that sounds, of course, very abstract, but um, just like we can say that in sleep, while you're sleeping, you're not aware of it, like deep sleep. But when you wake up, then you realize, oh, there was a gap where I was not really aware of anything, but now I feel much more fresh. Mm. And meditation is in some ways like that, except that it doesn't have this inert state that sleep has. It's a much lighter, more aware state. So you may still be aware of your surroundings sometimes in between, but it doesn't interfere with that state of rest. Does that make sense? Because it's, of course, very subtle. Absolutely. Um, it's like you're saying that the sensation of the sleep, but there is that sense of awareness when you're in it. Yeah. So it is not completely that you've disconnected. Yes. But it is that you've connected in your, and, and that awareness is still there. Correct. And that way it's even deeper the rest. It's, it's more fresh. Like in sleep still, when you wake up, you may feel a little groggy or 
You know, it's like that, that little bit of inertia is there, while right. here it is a much lighter, fresher state. And, you know, so many people write and saying that I just cannot stop my thoughts when I'm trying to sit down to meditate, right? My thoughts, Correct. thoughts, thoughts, thoughts. Is it actually a state of zero thoughts? Is it a state of conscious thoughts? What is that state? So it need not be, because if we look at how our nervous system and the mind, the consciousness works, is that it actually when you experience deep rest, that is when it also lets go of stresses, strains, impressions, tensions. So some of the people may have experienced sometimes when you really relax, say after a workout, you lie down or after a yoga session, you do your shavasana, you lie down on your back. If you really relax at some point, suddenly an arm may twitch or, you know, or some muscle will go like that. So on a physical level, when your body really relaxes, even when sometimes lying in bed, mm. suddenly some, some muscle may move because there was a tension there and it gets released. So in the same way in meditation, when we experience deep rest, what happens is that the system starts throwing off these pent-up stresses, strains, impressions. So one of the ways that is released is also as thoughts. So many people have this concept that, oh, meditation means there should be zero thoughts. And actually, Correct. this is not the case, especially not initially, because you have a lot of backlog, but you notice that the thoughts are very random. So it's not like you're consciously thinking about something. It's just that some things keep coming up. And when you don't really engage with it, then you find it doesn't disturb you also. So it doesn't really interfere with the quality of rest. Rather, it's like you deleting your unnecessary files. And afterwards, you feel much more fresh. Yes, absolutely. It's just that we keep engaging all the thoughts that keep coming in our mind. And then we have yeah. that interaction, which, exactly. which throws it into a tizzy, into more thoughts after that. Yeah, and then you feel very frustrated. Very frustrated. <laughs> Why is this not happening? Why am I not yeah. in a thoughtless state? <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. So, I mean, and see, many people, um, sorry, sorry to interrupt. No, many people also, that's why they, they tend to struggle because if we look at, for example, mindfulness practices, you know, then we say, okay, keep your attention on one thing. Like keep your attention on the breath or on a sensation or totally with what you are doing. But then to do that effectively, you already need a certain amount of mindfulness. Yes. So for beginners, especially, it can be very frustrating where you say, you know, I'm, you realize that it's actually very difficult <laughs> to really just be with one thing. And that is where also, like, of course, in my book, I've dedicated a whole chapter to the difference between mindfulness and meditation, because being fully aware of something also is still doing something. You're still engaging the mind. And as I said, that skill of effortlessness, of allowing mm -hmm. the mind to settle down, to let go, uh, is a skill. And we can learn that. Of course, I gave some exercises for that as well. But um, that is where I think, as you said, for people who want to start getting to it, or you say, we have been trying to meditate, it, but it's not working. Knowing that, okay, this trying to meditate itself is an obstacle. So even though it sounds very contradictory, the more you feel that, okay, even if I don't end up meditating, it is okay. Let me just sit for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. That itself can take care of some of that, yeah, that feverishness or that, that eagerness to meditate and actually allow the mind to settle. So it's like in the, in the scriptures, they say that the, the quickest way to reach there is to have infinite patience. I love that. <laughs> That's actually the fastest way to get there. And you're so right, you know, so many people have this issue about saying, no, I have to sit here till that half an hour is over, even though I'm forcing myself through it. I'm, you know, because like you said, we are so used to understanding the physical body that we believe that the more effort we put in, the better the result's going to be. That is not necessarily true for meditation. That's my understanding. What is that what you feel as well? Exactly, exactly. It's not just what I feel, also. It's, it's been my experience. And uh, many people that I've, I've worked with, of course, 
And actually, if we look at the scriptures of yoga, it's very interesting because, of course, meditation is a part of yoga. Absolutely. It says that two things are required. So they say one is abhyasa, the regular practice, where they say you have to do it for a longer period of time, without a gap, with sincerity. That is how you create a good habit. Like when you've been teaching people about so many wonderful habits to inculcate, but to make it part of your life, this is the way to go about it. And the Rishi Patanjali has given it very beautifully. He says you have to do it for a longer time. One or two days alone is not going to cut it. Without interruption, at least initially, and with sincerity. But they said only that is not enough. If you want to be really firmly established in that state of yoga, uh, want to become a yogi, then you also need vairagya, which is dispassion. And that dispassion is that ability that you're not craving or, or wishing for anything, looking for anything, either in this life or the next. So the, he was very, he was a scientist. You know, he knew that some people may be very dispassionate here, but they want a good seat in heaven. You know, okay. it's like I'm investing, like now some people are investing in Bitcoin because you know, who knows about this monetary system, but at least there I'm set. Mm-hmm. So they say, okay, at least in the next life or in, in heaven or somewhere, then I'll be sorted. So he said, no, when you're able to drop all of that and you're saying it right now for the next few minutes, I don't want anything. It's like you have died. You know? So if you're able to do that, then you will find that that itself takes care of so many of the challenges, so many of the thoughts. Like if you're sitting in for a moment, you can really feel as if Ashdin has died. You know, you're, all your things are done. So when you die, then your family responsibilities, anyway, none of your business anymore. You don't have to think about your work. So then you will find that if you can really feel that, those thoughts will not even come. Otherwise, you may sit and suddenly a thought comes. Oh, I still have to schedule a podcast with this person or I have to follow up on that production. Or, And I think this is a challenge, like you said, most people face. You want that little bit of me time, but you end up thinking about all the pending work, all the stuff that happened earlier. So this is a very valuable principle that can, can really aid us. And this is something people could try today itself, where you sit for your meditation Feel for a moment as if you have died. All your things are finished. Feel it for a moment and just relax and then see how it goes. You know, this is such a beautiful exercise. In fact, I was practicing this a while back. And every time I spoke about this idea of death to people, saying that, you know, imagine a person has died or imagine you have died. Imagine everything has ended because that is peace, right? Now you have nothing to worry exactly. about. What are you going to worry about from now onwards? It's such a relief, actually. <laughs> It's a relief. It's like now it's it's a release almost, right? Yes, exactly. And right now our cultural way of thinking about death is so negative that yeah. we don't even want to think about it. That it has gotten is such a, a bad name, no? Yes. <laughs> we celebrate life, we don't celebrate death. Yes, yes. So I think in some way that is wisdom, you no know, being mm-hmm. able to acknowledge, appreciate both the opposites. Because life is full of opposites and the moment we we favor only one or you stick only to one, we have conditioned ourselves to become miserable sooner or later because you cannot avoid it. You will have day and night. Mm. And I think that real skill of living life happily, peacefully, living life like a yogi is to be able to appreciate both because then you start seeing that this world is really very beautiful. Beautiful. We're going to take a quick break. See you on the other side. Welcome back. All right, let's jump into the conversation. In fact, you raised a lovely point. What is it like to live life as a yogi? Again, you're asking a very difficult question. <laughs> How to <laughs> convey an experience. But I think, uh, and that, that people have given entire 
discourses on just small fractions of it. But I think if I try to sum it up in just one or two lines, a yogi is one who is totally at peace and comfortable with him or herself in all your aspects and also with the world around you. So it allows you to appreciate the diversity, to welcome whatever comes, and to have an anchor inside a part of you which you know, you you experience, not just intellectually, but on an experiential level where you know there is a part of me that doesn't change, that is unaffected, that is like a witness, you can say. And because that is there, you have a reference point or an anchor that allows you to sail through any experiences without really getting phased or, or, or shaken. And I think in today's world where, especially in the last two years, I'm sure everyone who is listening can relate. We have seen that so many things have started shaking, you know, people, whether it is your job, maybe you were not sure whether you will still have a job or your business, whether you can run it or your social life. You you could not go out and meet your friends or your family or your savings, the economy, your health, whatever it may be. All those things that knowingly or unknowingly we tend to rely on for our sense of security, our sense of stability and peace. When those started shaking, then we get shaken. And of course, nobody likes that. It was a very difficult time, I think, for almost everybody. But then the beauty is when you have that that experience that, oh, but there is a part of me that is untouched, that is beyond this body, even beyond these thoughts and emotions and whatever keeps changing, then even when all of that starts shaking, you're able to maintain a level of peace and equanimity that does not only allow you to keep functioning properly, effectively, but you also become a lighthouse or a, a source of solace and stability for the people around you. So sometimes we tend to feel that all these habits or these things that we work on is only for ourselves. No, like you have episodes on so many aspects of life where we can improve, but sometimes people may also struggle a little to find the time because they feel, oh, but it's selfish for me to take a lot of time just to work on me. And we tend to forget that the more wonderful a person you become, the more enthusiastic, happy, peaceful, healthy you are, you also carry that with you. So you become a source of support for people around you, just like a stressed out person can spoil the atmosphere in the office or at home. So I think we need to realize that, that this is one thing where we can be a little selfish, even if it's for the greater good. I like that. Be a little selfish for the greater good, completely acceptable. You mentioned one important part, which was understanding self. Right. Mm-hmm. And once you understand the self, you are completely in tune because now you know none of these external things are going to come and affect you as in a way. What is the role of meditation and therapy? You know, right now, a lot of people are putting emphasis on, you know, going to a therapist, going to a counselor and talk therapy, those kinds of things. Are these two completely opposite aspects? Are they in line? Should you be doing both together? What are your thoughts on this? Um, Well, of course, every case is unique, as you very well know. So some people may not necessarily require therapy if they meditate. You know, it can help you deal with or prevent a lot of stress. At the same time, I would say that uh, in many ways they are complementary. I would like to mention that sometimes, of course, every therapist, again, has a different approach, so we cannot generalize. But sometimes we we hear this line that, okay, deep inside of you, there is some trauma or some suffering. But the beauty is that Actually, if you see it, it's on the surface. If you go a little deeper, then you realize, oh, deep inside, actually, there is only peace. There is joy. There is a part of you that is untouched. 
And this can, just this knowledge or awareness itself can really give people a lot of confidence or strength because even like personally, I have also worked in, in prisons with, with prison inmates, with well, even I would say terrorists, uh, militants, you know, people who have not just done terrible things, but usually have also gone through terrible things. You know, they have a lot of trauma, which they carry a lot of anger, a lot of uh, fear or whatever it may be. And we have seen that usually just incarceration doesn't take care of that. You take them out of society, but you don't really help them to, to become a better person. Okay. And when we work with them, we do the breathing techniques, the meditation, and some of this knowledge and understanding, we have seen that over a sometimes not even that long period of time, people really transform. Some of them are doing wonderful social service right now. They have taken full responsibility because now they say, you know, earlier, I cannot promise that I won't do it again because some people in a fit of anger or rage or fear do something terrible, but they say almost it was like something took over or it happened. So that leaves a lot of trauma because that means it can happen again. I didn't consciously decide to go and, you know, beat up someone or kill someone. But now they say, now I can actually take responsibility and say that I will not do it again because I have learned to deal with it and to actually manage my emotions. But so there, those tools to put them in touch with a part of them, which is beyond all that. And when you realize, oh, yes, there is still an innocent, wonderful, unscarred person inside can give a lot of strength. And even people who have been through very traumatic things, that is where meditation is a wonderful aid, I would say, or an addition. At the same time, yes, therapy definitely has its place in many, many cases, because it helps us also to understand. And I think even in yoga, in the traditions of yoga and Ayurveda, uh, the Vedic tradition, uh, they always had these two things. One is the, the practice, so the meditation, the, and, but then the other part was the knowledge, so understanding. And they've always said that these complement because only the understanding, intellectual understanding or conscious understanding may not be able to give you the experience. But without understanding it, the experience may go unnoticed or you cannot fully harness it. So you need to know what you have. And therapy, uh, that's where it can really help because it can give us clarity that, okay, what is it that, that is uh, troubling me or what is it that I'm afraid of and why is it so? And then getting that understanding, oh, but there is a different way to look at it or there is a different context from which I can approach it. So I would see both go hand in hand. That's such a lovely answer. The aspect of therapy and like I like I like I love how you said it's about the knowledge, right? Oh, this is possibly what had happened, but that's not yeah. who I am. Is where the meditation comes in, right? And yes, yes and all the trauma is on the surface. We yes. need to look deeper to understand who we truly are, and the trauma slowly, slowly starts being shed. Yes, because some um, of it, like actually, really, trauma is mostly actually it's on the emotional level, so it's a little more subtle. Right. Mm -hmm. So we understand, okay, what went wrong and maybe how I can avoid it in the future or how I can look at it. But then sometimes we see that even though intellectually you, you know or you understand that there is no reason to be afraid of this or to feel bad about it, but that doesn't always take care of the feeling. So it's not so much the memory of what happened, it's the feeling behind it. And that is where we've seen that, especially the breathing techniques, uh, like we teach the Sudarshan Kriya in our programs, uh, some of the pranayamas and the meditation can help us to also go beyond the mind and take care of some of those deeper layers. Uh, layers and then it becomes a beautiful uh, package to refresh and renew yourself. How beautiful. Samiji, what is the process? Like, um, is there a starting point? Are there certain practices that you start off with that are basic and then intermediary, advanced? Like, 
how how does somebody think about meditation in the way that that you teach it well of course again like in my book i have given different ways to approach it uh, you know every chapter has some exercises and things like that for people to get started at the same time just like in the book i've not stuck to only one way of meditation of course we we in art of living we have a technique that we teach but in the same way there are other traditions other schools and i for one will not be someone who will say oh this is the only way because that is the beauty of this whole tradition that there are so many paths to the same goal at the same time yes there are certain principles that make up meditation or that can give you an indication that yes i'm on the right track or i'm progressing at the same time everyone is unique like you yourself would have experienced and this is with everything some people pick up a guitar and within a month they do so much better than someone who has been trying for 2 years you know mm-hmm. so in that way some people skip a few classes because naturally you know they have a knack for it or so we all have our own conditioning but what i would say is that to get started for people practically one is that will really help you is having some clarity of what you want to do and where you want to go and that is one of the main reasons i wrote my book looking inward because nowadays there is much more awareness like you said many people may want to meditate but then where do you start there may be so many apps so many youtube videos websites and some would be really good many also would be maybe average some are really not great some may be something completely different <laughs> they just call it meditation Correct. so it's quite difficult for people like where do you start so that is why in the book i have given some of these main principles that you say okay yes this is what meditation is this is what it is not this is how you can go about it and then some of these uh, principles that we discussed about one is dispassion cultivating that skill where you say yes for a few moments i don't want anything i don't need anything also especially in the beginning one thing that can really help is having someone who can guide you you know so because as you said you know, to figure it out at least if you have a, a proper foundation yes then you can go ahead but to get started to save yourself a lot of time and trouble i would say learn from someone who can teach you a proper technique or who can guide you initially and also there are different tools like for example sometimes doing a little bit of breathing techniques pranayamas can really help or if you're someone who tends to be a little restless you or you you sit all day then before you sit for meditation uh do a little exercise you know you can go for a jog dance jump up and down whatever you like doing so that at least some of that restlessness go out of your system and you can sit still comfortably for some time if you're very stiff do a little stretching and if possible maybe initially at least find a environment where is not too much of disturbance it doesn't have to be totally quiet but especially in the beginning yeah if you have your you know sasuma shouting all the time because you're sitting next to the kitchen or uh, you know you're next to a construction site it may be more challenging than you would like correct and swami ji what is meditation now for you at your stage in, in evolution like how has that changed dramatically for me it is real quality time with myself mm-hmm. it is a moment of yeah taking a step back and dropping the world i would say I have been practicing like for the last 20 years and it is still a daily practice at the same time it's not a dependency you know so sometimes people ask me then like okay after all these years still every day you have to do it then it's almost like what is the point you know <laughs> like where have you reached but then oh, is the it an new... addiction or something like that correct yeah 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 like doing, people cannot go without day? a cup of coffee yeah. you know correct so it's not like that sometimes of course when i have a lot of programs or i'm traveling i may not sometimes have the time to 
really sit nicely in the morning and do my, my yoga, my meditation. And when that is the case, I don't see much of a difference in the quality of my state of mind or my energy level. So definitely it's like you have your foundation set. At the same time, it's a journey that continues. So I wouldn't say that right at the start, I didn't have any beautiful experiences yet, or it wasn't so deep. No, definitely it was. But at the same time, I can see that over the years, definitely the quality has changed. The experience keeps changing. And it's beautiful. It's like you get to explore newer dimensions within yourself. And like I said, the more you start living from that level consciously, it becomes an, an integrated experience. Then, as it said in the Bhagavad Gita, as a yogi, you become like the lotus leaf and the water doesn't stick. It's at Padma Patrami Vamasi. That means the leaf of the lotus and the water on it, it just slides off. So you become like that in the world. So sometimes people ask also, you know, as a Swami, as a monk, they think you should be sitting in an ashram or a monastery somewhere or on a mountain. You know, how can you have a mobile phone or a laptop or doing all these worldly things? But the beauty is that real, you know, yoga or, or detachment or dispassion, renunciation, whatever you want to call it. It's not about you going out of the world. It's about taking the world out of you. And I think that's a beautiful quality that to some extent uh, everyone should be allowed to experience where you do your things, you have to do your daily stuff. But at the same time, there is this underlying silence or peace that doesn't get shaken irrespective of whatever, where you are or what you're doing, so that you can really feel at home wherever you go. Is it that the worldly experiences exist, but the desire for them doesn't? Is, is that another way of thinking about it? Um, that is one way. Um, okay. See, of course, desire is one thing that takes our mind out of the present moment. So hmm. uh, desire is one way of looking at it is basically you're successfully postponing your own happiness <laughs> because like, you think absolutely. it is later. Or not sabotaging now. your happiness. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we're very good at that. Hmm. So we keep <laughs> promising ourselves that, okay, later I will be happy or peaceful, but who knows when or if it will happen. But it's not only the desire part. It is also... Um, like, as you know, that certain experiences may make us uneasy or uncomfortable or stressed. And that to some extent is because we still identify a lot with our body, our feelings, our thoughts, what others think of us or how we would like others to see us. And the more we realize that on one level, we are all beyond this body and mind, then yeah, it just becomes, we start giving less importance. And I think this is one of the biggest lessons I've also learned in my journey that, and this is very interesting also for those who may be you know, a little bit more into psychology and all of that, that the things that the thoughts that become the strongest impressions or that even leave an impression and thus can also disturb or trouble or distract us are those things that we have given a lot of importance to. So we have people telling us things all day and most of it you may not remember. But when a loved one looks at you in the wrong way, or a colleague says something about, or you've heard that someone said something about you behind your back, it can really prick you and you remember it. It stays with you to the extent that sometimes even months or years later, we may feel uncomfortable in someone's presence or even someone mentioning their name. While if the same thing would have happened with a stranger or, or in your dream, then it doesn't disturb us at all. You may have a terrible dream. You may wake up feeling anxious or even crying or, or angry. But then the moment you realize it was just a dream, then within 
minutes, sometimes seconds, you forget it and say, in my dream, you have treated me very badly and beaten me up. Then now when I see you in person, even if I would remember that, I don't hold it against you. I don't say, oh, why is oh, this Ashdin guy? Yeah, you know. No, I may even, if I remember, have a good laugh and say, you know what? I had such a funny dream. <laughs> you were beating me up. <laughs> so the beauty is the more we realize that all these experiences that we have are also just fleeting impressions you know, because whatever happened yesterday, it's gone now, whether it was pleasant or not. We start giving less importance to the events, to the situations, and then those impressions don't become so strong and they don't disturb us so much anymore. Beautiful. I love the way that you tied that in together. Swamiji, how can people continue this conversation with you? How can they get in touch? How can they find your book? Where, where is it available? Well, um, the book is easy. It's called Looking Inward, uh, Meditating to Survive in a Changing World. Or if you're in other parts of the world, there is an, another edition which has almost the same name. It's still called Looking Inward, Then How to Find Calm in a Chaotic World. This is published in the UK, Australia, South Africa, everywhere. Um, so that you just go on Amazon or anywhere where you like to get your books online or go to a bookstore. We've just had the release in Europe for the Dutch and the German edition as well. Oh, wow. Uh, Congratulations. The Arabic edition is already available in the Middle East. And uh, we have a few more languages coming up, such as Russian, French, Italian, and a few others. Hindi is coming also in the next few months. But uh, So the book is called Looking Inward. And for people who would like to yeah, maybe connect, reach out to me, I do my best to keep up. I do that personally with my social media. So people could drop me a message on Instagram. The same name, Swami Purna Chaitanya. I should say it's a verified handle because some people have been one guy actually has been creating fake accounts in my name. Oh, wow. So look for the blue tick. But, look for uh, the blue tick. <laughs> yes. So on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, I have a YouTube channel that I've not been as regularly with recently, but I'll do my best. Or go to my website, swamipurnachetani.com. It has links to all of these. And if people like mantras also, I've recorded some mantras. It's on Spotify, Apple Music, all of that. Fantastic. So you're most welcome to reach out to me. It may take a few days sometimes to revert, but I do always reply. Lovely, lovely. Swamiji, thank you so much for coming on the Habit Coach Podcast. It was truly a pleasure, Asdin. I've listened to one, some of your podcasts in the past as well. And uh, it's been an, an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. And uh, definitely, I look forward to staying there. Thank you, for sure. And I'm looking forward to our second episode as well, where we're going to be talking about focus and, you know, those aspects of it. So, yes, thank you so much for coming. Now, if you like this podcast, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IBM network. You can listen to us on the IBM podcast app or ibmpodcast.com. You can also follow us on social media. We are at IBM podcast on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to reach out to me, I am at Ashton Doc on Twitter and Instagram. We have a brand new habit coaching online course, quizzes, videos, and a lot more on the website awesome180.com. So check it out now.